It's a little bit of Mother's Day trivia coming at you today. You know, without Unitarianism, we might not have Mother's Day. Did you know that? It's absolutely true. Julia Ward Howe. How many of you know that name? Julia Ward Howe. Remember that? Battle Hymn of the Republic. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is, I think, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Well, she wrote that, 1862. She wrote it because she was a fierce abolitionist, and she was in Washington, and she saw a place on the Potomac River where the Union Army was encamped, and she was so inspired by what they were fighting for, to hold the Union together and against slavery, that she was inspired to write that hymn. Well, about eight years after that, and she really saw up front the carnage, the unbelievable bloody violence and waste of human life during the Civil War. She wrote something else. 1870, she wrote the Mother's Day Proclamation. I won't read all of it to you. I'm going to read some of it to you. Sounds like it's time, so just translate a little bit. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and to commemorate the dead. Let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family might live in peace, each bearing after his own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. Disarm, disarm, the sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Just show of hands, how many of you moms had that in your Mother's Day card this morning? <laughs> any of you? Any of you have that? Didn't think so. Now, I'm not putting down the sentimentality of Mother's Day. I am a rank sentimentalist. I've shared that with you before. Hearts and flowers and brunches, all that stuff is wonderful. Just wanted to call us back to some of the origins, as Howe saw it, as Julia Ward Howe saw it, of why Mother's Day mattered in the first place. See, the way she saw Mother's Day was that it was a celebration of family life that celebrates service and justice work beyond the family. Mother's Day at its inception was not just about the family, but also about all that that makes truly family life grow and is wonderful. And so it's fitting today that today I turn to the second in this message series, how to build a strong spiritual identity before Sunday morning, family practice. Now, I said this last week, I'm just going to repeat it real briefly. The structure and the content is suggested by the Bhagavad Gita, one of the sacred scriptures of the Hindu religion, that talks about three essential disciplines, three essential practices, yogis, if you will, knowledge, action, and devotion that we can use to touch the most deep part of ultimate reality. And I've translated these into last week knowing, this week serving, and next week loving. And so today, we'll take a look at service. Take a look at how families can grow together through service work by focusing on people outside of the family itself. See, service and justice work is where spirituality incarnates itself most publicly because it's where we call ourselves out into the world to touch other lives, to touch the world itself, and in turn to be touched and changed in ways that we cannot at all predict. See, this is very much in keeping with how we understand religion at Wellsprings. We do not believe that this day, this Sunday, this one hour, is about getting religion for the one hour a week. 
We believe that religion is about living our faith in all our aspects of ourselves, striving to do that in all, all aspects of our lives. See, here we want to equip families, whatever shape, whatever size, whatever number, we want to equip families to grow together spiritually in all the days that you are blessed to share. There's a really basic reason for this, a really basic reason. We want you and we want families to be happy, to experience happiness together. Now, happiness is not just pleasure, not just good feeling. My favorite definition is ha- of happiness is by Tal Ben-Shahar, and it's elegant in its simplicity. He says that happiness, true, sustainable happiness, is the ability to experience pleasure in the context of meaning and purpose. Pleasure plus purpose. That is what adds up to truly happy lives. And that takes work. It is not always easy. You know it is not always easy to find that balance of pleasure and purpose in your life. Tolstoy, the first line of his great novel, Anna Karenina, wrote a beautiful untruth, a beautiful lie. He said, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Maybe you've read that before. I don't agree at all in the least. Now, it could be that if you are a dramatist, as Tolstoy was, you will say that dysfunctional families certainly are more interesting. Fortunately, I don't come from one of those kinds of families, but I've spent more enough time around them throughout the years. And if you're in the midst of one of those families, I'm sorry, Oh, they're just bat crap crazy. You know, you cannot predict the next thing that is going to happen. Life in one of those families or near one of those families is incredibly interesting. But they're not all the same. And happy families are not all the same either. There are commonalities underneath between happy families and unhappy families. One of the things I've learned in my just now decade plus of ministry are some of the things that families can do to thrive and some of the things that families sometimes don't do that cause themselves not to thrive. One of the things I've seen over and over again in families that do not thrive or fail to thrive is that they are isolated. They're cut off. There is no connection with the world outside. They live unto themselves, sort of self-concerned, and without a connection to any life bigger than just their own life together. See, if it really, if we really believe that it does take does take a village to raise a child, then the healthiest, the healthiest families in that village will be the ones who spend a lot of time and energy and care working to make the village stronger because they know as the village thrives, so will they themselves thrive as well. And so the practice of service, fundamentally the first thing it does is it makes family life less lonely, more connected, Service is fundamentally one of the ways that we expand our definition of what matters to us in life. See, people who serve, that word servants, it actually can have a really negative connotation. We associate servant with someone who is meek or lowly or mild or weak. In fact, people who serve regularly and families who serve regularly are in fact wonderfully, wonderfully strong. I think I learned this lesson of service most profoundly at a time in my life in which I was feeling amazingly cut off from almost everyone and everything. I was a very, very depressed 24-year-old. I, looking back, I think you could say I hit the neurotic trifecta. I can joke about it now. It certainly wasn't funny at the time, but, you know, now I can look back with some humor. That shows some distance between there and then, and that's, that's a healthy thing. That anxiety disorder, panic disorder, if you will, 
I was depressed and also had obsessive-compulsive disorder. I was pretty isolated. Wanted to keep myself away from a lot of things, that neurotic trifecta I hit. And I have to tell you, for about six months, it was the bleakest time in my life, except for one thing that I had to force myself to do three to four times a week. See, at that point, I was living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which, as some of you might know, is one of the most well-to-do areas in the entire world. But it's less than a mile away from East Harlem, which is one of the most struggling areas in all of America. And so, in the midst of this time in which in my life I had a lot of despair, three or four days a week I would go up and serve in an after-school program called the Booker T. Washington Learning Center in the basement of this tiny little church, the Church of the Resurrection in East Harlem. And I have to tell you, even though it took all the strength and all the will that I have, what at that point was minimal, to drag myself out of the apartment and go up and tutor, the only time I felt good about myself was when I was tutoring and after I got back. And so as I started to recognize this pattern, I recognized that during that time, I was giving my life purpose when I did not think it had any. Dan Gottlieb, with some of you know, the pretty well-known family therapist in our area, says, if you want to give someone's life meaning, you know what you need to do? Ask them for something. If you want to give someone life meaning, ask them for something. Another way to put this, if perhaps you're struggling with meaning or purpose at this time in your life here today and you're feeling a little wayward, Ask yourself this question. If you, if you want to give your life meaning, ask yourself what you have to give away. Not, will my life have meaning possessively, but what do I have to give away to another person or to the world? Because that is really the only open secret there is to charge full living. It's not about possessing meaning. It's about giving meaning to others and to ourselves. Energy, just like love, cannot stay in one place. It cannot just sit there. It has to be shared in order to be activated. And through that activation, our lives come to have greater meaning and purpose. It's just like today's drama. You see the switcheroo, the paradox there. Mr. White Lexus complaining about all that he does not have. And the homeless woman who gives him two coins. Now, we don't want to idealize what people who are facing economic difficulty have to face. But in the drama, we can see which person is happier, which person is living a more blessed life, which person is able to move beyond that narrow focus of worrying about me, 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 by being able to understand the power of belonging to that larger we. Moving from me to we, that is the way that we give and receive meaning in our lives. See, what service and family life helps families to do fundamentally is to understand the difference between being empowered and being powerless. I heard with a sort of rueful smile about two weeks ago, there was a story on NPR, perhaps you heard it, about a church that had established as one of their core values, and I'm thinking of amending it here at Wellsprings. Maybe we should take a look at this. One of their core values was no complaining. <laughs> and by the way, you are not a complaining lot, but we all love to do it. I love to do it. No complaining. And this is one of these big, huge, megachurch, you know, Protestant churches somewhere in Texas. No complaining. Core value, none at all. And then what they did is they contrasted it with cultures that are known for complaining. And I recognize that in myself as well, too. They talked about the very, very funny tradition of complaining within Jewish culture. On the one hand, perhaps there was this Protestant culture, no complaining, just deal with it. On the other hand, this Jewish culture from which I come. This is not anti-Semitism here. This is just recognizing part of who I am, 
part of where I come from. And one of the things they talked about is that there is a reason, a very valid historical reason for a culture of complaining very often tied to the great, one of the great gifts I know of the Jewish people, humor. Why is that? Because complaining is very often the opportunity for the powerless to find their voice. The problem, however, with sustaining a culture of complaint is that it stays disempowered. There is nothing changed. Nothing moves. There is just the complain and the complain and the complain. I used to have a button that someone gave me, and that's when I recognized I need to start complaining a lot less. The longer you complain, the more God lets you live. I don't believe that anymore. A friend of mine a couple years ago, she related a story to me. It was about Christmas. She grew up in an extreme, an extreme born-again Christian family, the kind of religion that really made her question whether religion was of any good whatsoever at any time, at any place. Both her parents were pastors. And when she left their home, she left that faith. And she hated Christmas. Hated it. I mean, we're talking like beyond the Grinch level of hate of Christmas. No tree, no bird, no stuffing, no, uh-uh, Christmas, not in her house. Until she started to wake up some years and she recognized that perhaps, you know, spirituality wasn't all just a lie and she still didn't like many of the commercial trappings of Christmas, but she got tired of complaining. Do you know what she and her husband did on Christmas? For years, they lived outside Washington, D.C. And what they would do is they took thermoses of hot coffee and thermoses of hot soup, and they went around just driving up and down the streets of various parts of our nation's capital. And on Christmas Day, seeing homeless people out on the street, stopped their car, went and served those people. See, they didn't stop disagreeing with some of the commercial parts of Christmas that really drove them up the wall, but they went from complaining to making a difference. They went from sitting back and saying, oh my God, everything is wrong, to taking the step to make a difference. They empowered themselves. Making these choices empowers all of us, and it certainly empowers our families. I see it every week. I saw it just a few minutes ago when I see the excitement in our kids' eyes. Ooh, give me that dollar. Give me that dollar. I want to drop it in the hat. I want to drop a hat. I want to give too. Me, me, me. I want to give. It's a great thing to see because we are building the practice here amongst our kids that it is a good thing to give. And as being part of this community, we are expected to give whatever we have, whatever we had, maybe a lot, maybe a little, but give what we can and give what we are able. Recently, and you'll see this again next week, during our, or excuse me, right after our congregational meeting, I know a number of our kids participated in building birdhouses. Remember hearing about this about three, four weeks ago? Our kids built birdhouses that we are going to, well, not quite auction off. We're going to ask for a 15 minimum, minimum dollar donation. You can give 25 or 30 if you want. Because it's all going to go to our Habitat for Humanity house that we are building. The groundbreaking was three weeks ago that we are helping to build in Westchester. So what I want to encourage you to do is buy a birdhouse. See if you can buy your kid's birdhouse. But I've been told all identifying remarks of individual authorship of birdhouses have been removed. This is what happens when you have five different kids painting a birdhouse at one time. Hey, interdependent birdhouse, this is great. <laughs> but what I'll encourage you to do is to take that birdhouse, especially if you have kids, take that birdhouse and drive down, and you can see the map in the back as to where our Habitat for Humanity houses, houses, there's several being built at one time, 
are being built. And what I want to encourage you to do is drive down there with your kid, hold that birdhouse and say, you know what, because you had a hand in building this, this house is being built. You did this. You did this. This is just a small thing. But you, with this, built this. That is how we empower ourselves through service. That is how we take the time to recognize that something, no matter how small it is, if it is done with love, as Mother Teresa said, she said we cannot do great things in this life. We can only do small things with great love. We're teaching our kids that. Perhaps if your child's a little bit older, you can engage them in a conversation about what homelessness means, about the fact that perhaps there are people that they do not know in this world, that this is the only home that we are building that they will ever know. Our kids start to learn what Thoreau wrote about over 150 years ago, that goodness is the only investment that never fails. Goodness is the only investment that never fails. See, the spiritual practice of service in family life is about saying, Everything matters, no matter how small. And in time, small things can become big things. How many of you, show of hands, know Alex's lemonade stand? Yeah, that's almost all of you. This was Alex Scott, four-year-olds, diagnosed with neuroblastoma, I believe it was. She lived until just about the age of, I think it was eight or ten. And when she started one day, those of you who know the story, she decided she would raise funds to help fight cancer, hers and other kids who were living with cancer, by just selling glasses of lemonade. Five cents, ten cents. Alex Scott, unfortunately, has now died. But what lives on her name has now raised over $12 million to fight childhood and pediatric cancers. Small things matter. We cannot do great things. We can do small things with great love. This builds high esteem in all of us, and especially in our kids, in remarkable ways. Going all the way back to about a year and a half ago, before we had started worship services here at Wellsprings, we were having a visioning about what we wanted Youth Spirit to be about. And I remember someone said, and I can't remember who said it, that I want our kids to gain self-esteem by doing esteemable things. Not that kind of silly self-esteem that says, you're wonderful, you're precious, you're great. You're, I mean, they went a little bit overboard sometimes in the 70s and 80s with that kind of stuff. But self-esteem by doing esteemable things. Things that our kids can feel good about and know that they are making a difference and a contribution. I know, and I've heard these stories from some of you, many of you over the last year and a half. I know that one of you and your family, what you do every year at Thanksgiving time is you go out and you shop for nothing for yourself, but you go out and shop with your kids and you shop only for a meal for a family that is not your own. And the kids get to pick out the relish and the cranberry stuff and they get to pick out the bird. And at the end of that shopping trip, the kids know that someone else will be fed because you have taken the time to do so. I know that some of you have traveled internationally. Some of you have had the opportunity to serve at schools that help people in horrible war-torn areas build lives back together. And I know, because you've told me the story, of the way that changes your kids, the way it alters some of those traditional complaints that teenagers can have and makes them realize that there are things in this life so much more than just what we can have and hold. It is really about what we can share. Because service helps us engage the problems of the world, helps us stand for something as people and as families, rather than fearing the problems of our world. 
Recently, I had the opportunity to meet a woman named Homa Tavangar. Some of you might know her blog. It also appeared at philly.com, which is the online resource for the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's called At Home in the World. It recounts three months that she and her three daughters, aged 3 to 12, went and lived in Gambia in Africa and taught English and lived amongst the people there. She did a blog almost every day when she was there recording of what happened to her. And I like this one particularly because I'm one of those people who tends to wash his hands a lot. Bit of a germaphobe. like to make sure everything stays clean, especially because I touch a lot of people. A lot of people touch me. But she titled this one, Glad Handing. My girls reminded me today how much I've changed in being protective towards them. First, we shake everyone's hand, everyone's, wherever we go. There's no barrier of class or race or gender or what they've just finished handling. It's the first and most basic common courtesy. Sophia, who is only age three, knows this, thanks to the good examples of other children, that she is expected to shake hands with anyone we meet. Now, I have to say, the first couple of weeks, I carried hand wipes or hand sanitizer with me to use discreetly after I'd shaken someone's hand. But I have not used wipes or sanitizer in my purse in months. And we have not gotten sick either. I think that we are all stronger for it. All stronger for it. I mean, that's just a small symbolic thing. But what it does really show us is that we can move from a place especially with repeated acts of service towards holding ourselves back from life and being afraid of life towards engaging life and reaching out to and for and with each other, even to the extent that a three-year-old is able to see the wisdom of it and is able to recognize that ultimately, as we wish to be safe, as legitimate as that is, there is no final protection. And so we can engage rather than be fearful. What service finally does for families is help us and help you build grateful lives. Lives in which we are able to say thank you rather than gimme. Say thank you and experience gratitude rather than say I want more. This is what Homer wrote at the very final posting at the end of her time in Gambia. The feeling that most strongly rises to the top is gratitude. For the past week, I have been carrying this thought foremost in my mind and am constantly amazed by the good fortune we have encountered at every step of this journey. None of us got really sick. We have always felt safe. The kids had excellent school experiences. Our volunteer efforts were profoundly meaningful to us, and we have found ways to sustain some of this work we have done. We've met so many amazing people. And we've learned so much about this corner of the world that we are just starting to realize how much we do not know. That's solid spiritual furniture to sit in. Gratitude, humility, recognizing that the shape and the course of our universe does not waste small things, but binds them up with a larger story bigger than just ourselves. So as we grow together, and continue to grow together as a community. I want to encourage all of you in your family life, ask that question. How is service helping us and helping you grow together so that you have that solid spiritual furniture to rest in? And not just rest in, but know that it serves as the foundation of your strong 
home together. Amen. May you live in blessing.